Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Hello, my name is Erin. I'm one of hundreds of subscribers to the Debrief, a debriefer, if you will. A few weeks ago, I found myself thinking, I can't believe one person built this podcast that I've shared with fundraisers, friends, and donors. And then I found myself asking, how can I help? Maybe you've asked this question too. Become a supporter of The Debrief by contributing $1 or even $10 a month. Your contribution will help sustain future episodes. Our conversation today is dedicated to annual fund work. Rebecca Clenenden, Assistant Director of Annual Giving at DePaul University, talks to us about balancing an inclusive environment within the annual fund while using societies as a tool. Rebecca believes that every alum should feel comfortable giving to their annual fund at whatever level is best for them. She's also a strong proponent for making a career working in the annual fund. Rebecca has more than 10 years of experience in leadership annual giving and nonprofit management. She's currently a PhD candidate with an academic focus on local civil society organizations and engagement, including interest groups, social movements, and nonprofits. Now let's get started. Rebecca, welcome to The Debrief. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today. We're going to have a conversation completely dedicated to current use, annual fund giving. And this is the first time I've ever done that on this podcast. So thank you. Well, I'm really excited that you chose me to be the one to kind of introduce this topic. I think it's important. I actually think that my social science background contributes a lot to how I view this issue. Tell us more about your social sciences background. I started annual giving my training at Washington University in 2011 or 12. And shortly thereafter, I kind of decided that I wanted to continue my graduate education thinking that I was going to do NGO work. So I went and did a master's in international relations and learned there that what I really loved was the research component. So I left WashU to do my PhD in Chicago. So that's what brings me to DePaul today. And now I'm just finishing my dissertation in political science, particularly in local politics and interest groups and cultural politics. Yeah, you've done some really interesting research, which we'll dive further into. But let's start with With your 10 years of annual giving experience, what have you learned and how has your job and your position around these asks changed over the last decade? I think the biggest thing that I learned is the variability between advancement operations in this particular area. So whether you're at a private university or a public university, whether it is large and very well resourced or small and has limited capacities, the strategic operations of annual giving tend to reflect those variables more than any kind of strategic thinking. So I tend to look at this as kind of a reflection of their place in growth more than it is a factor of whether they're doing something right or wrong, having the ability to lean on the logic of strategy instead of on the kind of prescribed mechanisms that that logic produces has allowed me really some flexibility in developing an approach that works in every place based on their particular 
needs. There's a really great community that has developed around it. It is definitely professionalized a lot in the last 10 years. And I, I appreciate that because I think there's less room for neglecting annual giving, which we can talk a little bit later about why that's so problematic. It's so interesting to hear you say that annual giving has been professionalized. The field has been too in the last 10, 20 years. Do you think that's because it's had to, because we've had to raise more or are there other reasons? What I have experienced is that people are often really surprised that I want a career in annual giving. A lot of advancement operations, there tends to be an emphasis on major giving, which you understand produces faster and more immediate returns. And so in the stages of growth, I think that that comes first on the list of priorities more often than not. But if you sustain that prioritization throughout growth and you don't really invest in annual giving, what happens is you get annual giving officers who feel like in order to advance in their careers, they need to move up to a major gift position. And so annual giving for a long time and in a lot of places was and continues to be treated like major gift junior, where it really has its own Separate. Yeah. So because of this attitude, historically, you did see a lot more turnover in annual giving positions as people were moving up. And this was a lot also because, you know, institutional leadership always often came from a pool of people who did major giving or principal gifts because they need to be able to show that they can work with those high powered people once you're up at this kind of executive level. But that means that they often did not have the experience or the appreciation for the role of annual giving. So I think that's changing a lot. I still see it in a lot of places, but I also see a lot of very well-developed institutions kind of look at that with a little bit of skepticism and confusion because it's a, it's a bit of an outdated attitude to have now. It's still prolific. We're getting away from it, fortunately. Right. So you're saying annual giving was a step along the way towards progressing in the industry, but that actually you could spend years and years perfecting this part of the ecosystem that is so incredibly vital. Yeah, and I think that you can see that the people who have who have succeeded in annual giving, who have become really leaders in the field, are people who got in and committed themselves to this was their career path was annual giving. It wasn't an attempt to move to some other space, you know, that they were going to really master this. And those are the people that we have to thank for showing us the actual like potential benefits and the mm -hmm. really well invested annual giving operations. So what do you love about it? Why have you invested in that? For me, it's a social justice issue. There's a trend in philanthropy over probably the last 50 years called capitalistic philanthropy, which basically the capitalist free market society produces these very wealthy agents who then can kind of look at the need of society and the benefits of their wealth trickle down through their philanthropic investment in the needs of people who are less fortunate than them, which sounds wonderful. It sounds very familiar. None of that sounds alarming until you think about the fact that that means that the people who are crafting all of the solutions are the people with the most wealth and that those people don't necessarily have the right vantage point or perspective to create enduring solutions. And certainly if you prioritize wealthy 
you know, the engagement of the wealthy in your advancement operations, that may give you, again, those hard, large, fast returns that you're looking for, but it excludes a lot of people. It excludes most people in your community, right? So you're automatically diminishing your potential for returns. If there is inequity in the way a university prioritizes its major gift donors and its annual gift donors, you can only see that that in inequity is re produced in the institution at large over time. I think of annual donors as future major gift donors. Like I think of them as baby undeveloped major gift donor. I think because I'm in major giving, that's my mindset. But it sounds like you're saying, no, annual giving is for anyone with any level of wealth and they should be comfortable in that space. Well, I've worked in some development operations where you come into annual giving and what you find is that because there has been not as much emphasis on annual giving development work, like one-on-one -on -one connection, building the pipeline and things like that, what happens is that you will have a major gift officer who will go visit a prospect and they will disqualify them as a major giving prospect and then nobody talks to them again until 10 years down the road when maybe they've accumulated enough wealth to be requalified. If you're talking about actual engagement, I mean, we know this. Number one, that's not donor-centric. And number two, that's not producing the engagement that you need. Number three, that's not cultivation. But that really creates the foundational kind of tone of the relationship as transactional, wherein, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't have the capacity, we don't have the time. And to not have anyone in that position to respond when somebody says, I want to talk to somebody, you know, if, if you're an alum, that's incredibly exclusionary, you know, and I try to encourage people to think all the time about the bounds of the university community. We don't stop on campus. They extend out to the full alumni constituency as well. And if you fail to see that and fail to give inroads to participation and engagement, or you limit the capacity of those inroads to only the people who can produce significant returns, then that relationship with the university is incredibly brought with challenges. And you'll know as a major gift officer that, you know, sometimes the first call with somebody is like, well, why are you calling me now? You all only want my money. I don't understand because I gave you tens of thousands of dollars in tuition and now you want me to give you more money. That is because, again, you don't have a culture of philanthropy. It is transactional relationship. And that's what happens when you consistently send out a message to the whole community that what is really dictating their access to the community, to faculty members, to alumni agents, alumni relations agents, is their capacity to give. It undermines all the philanthropic kind of uh, strategies that you're trying to employ just by thinking of these in, of donors in these particular terms. So how do you think we can make changes in our pipeline development strategies when we think about the annual base? Okay, so going back to what I was saying about every institution being kind of in a different place in their yeah. size and their capacities and their growth, you know, we have all kind of taken away a few snippets of what works best and applied those. Or, or you see a lot of institutions will look at neighboring institutions where maybe some of their staff worked previously and then model it off of 
those organizations. And it doesn't always fit and it doesn't always work. And the reason is that you're not really examining the strategic mechanisms that you are employing. Instead, you're just taking kind of a cookie cutter model and assuming that one size fits all and placing it, you know, directly into an entirely new social context where you have different kind of relationships at play, you have different programs and capacities and, you know, just widely varied conditions with the same model of annual giving. So I would say that the best thing that we can do is really kind of critically think about what are the instruments that have been prescribed and what is it that they are really contributing and how can we apply them strategically to the conditions that we're in, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I don't see that happening a lot. I see a lot of conversations, you know, we do strategic planning, but we do it around the metric of pipeline growth, right? And we don't talk about maybe what's inhibiting that. We just beat the bushes some more and hope that it grows again next year. Or, you know, we talk about how we can have better giving conversations or write better appeal letters and things like that. These are all tactical, but right. your strategies are not really changing to fit the context that we're in. So that's kind of what I would say that we could do better is we could think more strategically about what works and doesn't and why. There are endless segments that you can think about and messaging and how do you align it with a campaign or a current leader? So the 10 years is making more and more sense, Rebecca. <laughs> you know, I look at long-term giving trends. So civil society engagement, going back to the turn of the 20th century, how has that changed? And also for leadership annual giving, what does that mean about how our engagement has to change? Giving societies were, you know, they originated in a period of time where something like 80% of the population was a member of a civil society group. And they were getting all of their information from radio, but also through personal networks. And also, you know, pre-Great Depression, most of the social need in the United States in particular was met through philanthropic and fraternal organizations. So this was a very familiar component of the social life of Americans. And that is no longer the case. And really, this is, you know, this is something that we learn early on in, in the study of political science, because it's a collective action problem. The question is, why do we continue to use this model for giving societies, you know, something that's been outdated for 80 years or so? And you even see, you know, I have very good friends who are Freemasons and things like that. Their numbers continue to diminish as well. And they, they point to the exact same thing is because social needs and the economic needs and the charitable needs have changed and the mechanisms and institutions that we use to address all of those needs have also changed. But the model of a leadership annual giving society has not changed. Let's shift into leadership annual giving. This is an area that you just hinted at. I think a lot of people can't quite crack it and they understand how important it is. You want to get that locked in four-figure support from your people who aren't ready to do more, but could do more than a hundred dollars. So it sounds like what I hear you saying is that what people are doing with giving societies, it just, the wheel hasn't been reinvented and maybe should be. Absolutely. And some of these structures remain really useful and 
important and powerful even, but because they are not applied in a better, more thoughtful way, they just cannot function, right? It's like having a, you know, 1958 Ford without any gasoline in it. Like well, that Ford could still be used for something, but you still have to gas it up. When the alumni community comes out to show support for a particular cause really transforms the perception of an institution. And I, I tell alumni this when I talk to them all the time, you know, that may not feel like you're 10, 20, 50, 100, $1,000 a year really has a huge effect on the university. But in aggregate, you're a part of this community of alumni who are showing that they're invested in very particular directions that the university could take. And that that's important messaging that goes to administration and to leadership about what their community will support. In other places, you see that similar efforts have come off as very performative. Mm -hmm. And you fall back onto the same question of how much depth of thought have we really given to this approach and to its long-term impact? So is it just, is it about using different language to describe the need for current use funding? I think it's really ultimately just about how we think of it. I mean, current use funding is very important. And of course, you know, administration's always going to, to identify specific institutional needs that are really not going to be apparent in the larger social environment, right? Like if we have retention problems, that's something that the administration's going to have to point the alumni to and say, this is where we as an institution need your particular support and things like that. But I think, I think it's really, when you're talking about inclusion, especially, it really is about reframing all of these giving conversations and all of these interactions to think less about a donor as a source and more of them as a willing participant in this grand project that we're all in. I think development operations, we tend to kind of be an engine in the institution and we're the ones that get some of the resources and the gas to continue to you know, you know, as well as I do, that a university has such vast transformative potential that you can really tie it as an institution to almost any social impact that a donor wants to see. But the problem really comes with, does the donor believe that you can make a credible commitment to transforming that? And therefore, is this university the most rational investment for them to make in order to achieve those ends? really thinking of them as partners instead of agents, you know, that really changes the dynamic of the conversation, but it really changes the institutional culture so significantly as well. Well, I know you did a rebrand just before the pandemic for the Giving Society at DePaul, and you, you, I was lucky enough to read your report and really see what you dove into. It was extensive. And one of the things that you uncovered, which I don't think this will surprise anyone, but the boundaries of a giving society help people belong in the context of what you're talking about, of bringing everybody in and being more inclusive. That's like a catch 22. Like, how do you hit that midpoint of including everyone, but also having that sense of belonging and a part of a special group? This is a catch 22 with all kinds of group psychology, identity politics stuff, right? Because 
the development of national identities is really a prerequisite to a stable state. But we also know that really heightened national identity that is you know, particularly exclusive in its orientation creates a lot of social problems and inequities because people then use this identity as grounds for excluding people. So understanding first that you have this balance that you need to attend to is really, really important because mm -hmm. you're right. You could end up reproducing the same problems that we see in excluding people who are not major gift donors just at a different level. Right? right, exactly. So what I would suggest is that this boundary, number one, it has to be substantive, right? You see a lot of giving societies, they say, okay, here's the limit, $1,000 or above, and you're part of the club, but they don't attach any meaning to it. Mm -hmm. Or they attach kind of material meaning to it that actually works against the culture of philanthropy that you're trying to cultivate. And it turns off a lot of donors because it doesn't appear that you're spending money wisely. So my recommendation is that really you use these giving societies as a platform for developing an internal alumni community. We know that giving societies are not very useful for recruitment, but they are great for retention. And the reason is nobody outside is ever going to look in and go, that community right there is worth $1,000 a year, right? It's still got to be driven by the philanthropic cause. But once you get into that community, the conditions of that community should make it so that you want to continue to participate, that you have developed relationships within that, 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 that being a member of that club has given some meaning and value to your life. So you aren't against giving societies. I am totally pro giving societies okay. if they're done well. And mm -hmm. I think instead of talking about you're going to give get some material benefits once you get to this level, you know, which get very complicated and people don't really pay that much attention to that and it becomes this administrative nightmare. Ideally, you should be thinking about do we have an opportunity that we couldn't offer to the entire alumni body for say a question and answer session with the new dean some access like that you cannot offer to the entire alumni community but you want to show that if you invest in the university a certain level we are going to steward that investment with reassurances that the university is using that money well and that means we'll give you greater access and attention than we can offer to the whole wider community. Fitting this kind of giving club in with those limited opportunities and access that heighten their sense of being really a cherished participant in this university, being influential in the university, and really the long-term development of an identity as a person who influences society as a member of this community. That's really where you find the real benefit of it is you really create some kind of cohesion in developing a social environment and a group identity around that level of giving. Yeah, let's talk about the levels within societies because I know that's an area that is talked about a lot. And I think for people who are listening who may be considering raising their minimum, I hate to use that word because that's so transactional, but raising their minimum. I mean, how do you decide where to start and where to stop? And I know it depends on the university and the, and the pyramid, but do you have any best practices there? Don't move it 
unless you absolutely have to. I mean, unless you're working with basically a clean slate, you are going to be undermining whatever branding and institutionalization of the giving society you already have in place by making any changes to it. So it could be more but harm than good. Absolutely. So unless okay. you're being just incredibly strategic and you have a strategic mandate for making changes, don't make changes. And the reason is that alumni are not investing their time into understanding these levels, no. right? Again, no. they might not, not even know them. It's not an effective recruitment tool. It's also not an effective upgrade tool, right? Because the idea is you this gives you a pool of people who are kind of they're cultivating each other in their kind of group identity relations and engagement. Well, let's let's talk about upgrading. Your your report yes. said that you know, people in giving societies are more likely to raise their gift than not. And I thought that was really interesting because we have this dual edged sword with the giving societies. So why is that? Well, it's not because of multiple ranked hierarchies within the giving society. I can tell you that. I didn't think so. <laughs> right. The more layers of a giving society you have, the more muddied the water becomes, the less effective any of those instruments And become. no one's memorizing all of those names. Nobody is memorizing any of this. They might not even be looking at it. You know, it might yeah. be that they gave a thousand dollars and oh, surprise, I'm a member of this club. Um, you know, like that's not, it's not motivating giving or increased giving in and of itself. What you do see is that people who join these clubs, if these clubs are done well, because of that group membership, because that you were cultivating a personal attachment and a connection between a person's individual identity and the institutional identity through that buy-in and investment and engagement, um, they are, because they feel like they are increasingly engaged, right? We, we know this because somebody feels increasingly engaged, they are more likely to invest. You are always more likely to invest in the solutions that you are closer to, that you understand better, but more importantly, that you identify with, right? Mm -hmm. They become more personal causes to you. And that's why people upgrade more in a giving society than outside of one is because the giving society creates an environment where those personal identity connections can really grow and develop, which is also why not having a giving society, you miss out on this really important and fundamental function. You know, I'll say people point all, all the time to Ivy League schools and they say, well, they can do a giving society because they're really, really old and they have lots and lots of money and they have academic excellence. That is not why those succeed. Those succeed because all of those factors have made it easier for them to cultivate this individual pride and identity for, that goes along with being a member of a group and participating in this way. And you can do that and develop that without having, you know, immense amounts of wealth and 200 year history and uh, all of those other factors. Well, and that's that also points to why so many of these giving societies have networking events, because you can't put a price on that. Absolutely. That DePaul has done really well at because they're we're located in the city of Chicago. We have a lot of alumni in Chicago. Really close. I mean, then our student, a lot of university operations have struggled to introduce really effective student alumni. Mm -hmm. 
DePaul has done really well at that because there are so many alumni who are proximate. And we found that that is that engagement, that interpersonal connection, alumni feeling that they are instrumental in the success of the university and being able to see, you know, a clear line of logic between what they are doing and the outcomes that, you know, are presenting themselves at the university is probably the number one biggest factor in, you know, an alum feeling like, like they should give and they should continue to give because that giving makes a difference, you know, and so yeah. it's an impact factor. And you had mentioned like physical gifts that can come out of giving. And I know this is tough. I have to tell a story. I got an, a very angry phone call that a donor who was in my portfolio had received, I think it was socks, something in the mail for giving in a certain month, there was a challenge. And he was like, I want my whole gift to go to the school and to go to help the school. I don't want to feel like I'm helping production of something that I could buy at the bookstore. And I, I really didn't know what to say to him. You know, I apologized and I listened and I said, you know, we'll take you off the list, but what, I mean, is that wrong? Should we not be doing that as part of our strategy? It's not wrong, but it is misunderstood. And I think it's misunderstood both by the people who are implementing the strategy and by the people who are receiving it. And if you're not implementing it with the right frame of mind, then you can't hope that the recipient is going to skip over your logical presentation of this gift to the final right conclusion, which is that, that that's actually critical for part of creating these identities and these connections. I'll use another example. We talk about sporting teams a lot. Universities, you hear staff complain all the time about how universities overinvest in athletics. Mm -hmm. But time and again, studies show that 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 athletics, successful athletics teams actually create a lot of exposure for the university, which helps with recruitment, but also that for the general public, actually, when I was at WashU, they were in their $1.1 billion campaign when I started, and they invested, gosh, so much money into getting consultants who could kind of walk us through our own, like, alumni constituency pool and you know, trends in higher education generally, and they did a study and showed that it is an overwhelming percentage of the public that assumes that name recognition correlates to academic excellence. So if they recognize the name of the university, they assume it's a good university. And, you know, contrary wise, if they've never heard of it, they assume it's not worth knowing. This is the problem that athletics really resolves and the benefits of it ripple out to the whole university. However much it may seem contrary to our academic ambitions and to the prioritization of academic ambitions, they play a really fundamental and important role. And in that same way, sending a donor sock, that is a declaration to the community that that person is a member of this community. And that not only reinforces their personal association and, and that they see themselves as a DePaul University alum or a Washington University alum 
or a Cornell or Columbia University alum, but it also indicates that that person is proud of that association. So wearing a pair of university socks reinforces that identity for the person that is wearing them, but it also makes a statement to the general public that makes that name recognizable and valued. It's a lot more than quid pro quo. But it it is an integral part of being in a community because every society, every group identity, every, um, yeah, I mean, race. I mean, as you're talking, I'm I'm thinking like I have a magnet. I'm looking at a magnet right now on my fridge from my school. My keychain is from my school. And those were gifts that I was given as a donor. And I don't think about it that much. But now that you're talking and I'm thinking about it, it's like that reminds me of my school every day when I every look day. at it. Yeah. And it that you would have it on your refrigerator. I mean, maybe next to photos of your nieces and nephews. That's what I have on my, my friend's work. baby. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like that puts it in a really personal space, right? right? So it frames it in these kind of intimate terms. Every group develops its own cultural markers and symbols. Mm-hmm. And the presence and predomination of those markers and symbols in the lives of its community members really makes some of that identity enduring, right? Again, it keeps it at the top of their mind, but it personalizes that identity and it, it's just fundamental to culture. So I, yeah. I would take that conversation with your donor and I would say, you know what, what you were saying is really a lovely sentiment and I hear you. We do this because we want to reinforce your sense of identification with the university, but we also want to, you know, make our alumni as a larger community visible to each other and also visible to the outside world so that they look to our alumni to understand what we are about. If we didn't do it, we stand to lose a lot more in terms of alumni connection. So And do you think those symbols really should all be historical, hearkening back to the past, or could these symbols be looking to the future? Um, They could be both. In social science studies of this question in particular, they look at this with regards to cities. So there have been a lot of studies that look at, do cities reference their history when they brand themselves or their past? Um, Either way, there are significant opportunities for exclusion that you need to be attentive to. But I would say that history is a much wealthier, albeit much more troubled area, right? Because you need to be very honest about that history and very forthright and take a critical gaze to history so that you're not reproducing its injustices. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you connect individuals and their mentality and their association with the university to a tradition of alumni engagement throughout the university's history. Not only are you getting, you know, this is, I reference this as a kind of communion of the saints, right? You're not only developing connection between current alumni and the institution, but you're developing their connection to this much larger historic population and culture and community of people. And that reinforces the sense of honor and duty and the values that the university is bringing, particularly the mission. You know, this is why the mission is so powerful. As you look back at when was this university founded? 
who founded it and what were they trying to do? Are we still trying to do, depending on the age of the university, you could look through a hundred years of people who have struggled and contributed and investment, invested in growing the university as their primary instrument for social change and transformation. And it creates a model for new alumni to follow. Mm -hmm. So this is why, this is why every nation, every race and ethnic group, they have histories that they tell to keep that individual identity alive because actually that identity is more sourced in the narrative that that group forms around than it is any other single factor. You define yourself less as probably an alum of a university and more as a person who runs in circles that are consistent with certain values that are important to you. If a university embodies those values and promotes those values and inspires those values in you through the model set by past generations of people who also did this for the university, it is immensely powerful. Yeah. We see the impacts of that same logic in every group dynamic you see in the United States or globally anywhere. It's foundational group psychology and cultural development. And previously you had, we, you know, we had talked about how if you're already in the giving society, you're more likely to give more. So as people are prioritizing their lists for this year, which is more important for priority, uh, retaining donors or upgrading donors? I always say retaining donors. Okay. I mean, there's always room for upgrading next year, but what you want to create is number one, the understanding that this is a long-term relationship, right? And that's the point in which general annual giving and leadership annual giving should begin to really shift. We focus on recurring giving really heavily at the annual giving level, which we don't at the major gift level because, mm -hmm. you know, many major gift donors cannot give at that same level year after year. But we also know that a continuity between giving is far more predictive of greater gifts in the future than a single major gift. We look at the aggregate benefits of that gift. That kind of recurrence is a much better sign of the condition of your alumni population and how yeah. long integrated them as actual members of the community. So yeah. if you do that well, upgrades will come. You still have to ask for it, but they will come. But the bigger problem that we have to be more attentive to is Keeping retention. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. I feel like we just skimmed the surface of all of the amazing research that you've done and all of the really important questions we need to be asking ourselves about annual giving. You know, I'm happy to talk about this anytime. I love it so much. It's truly a labor of love for me. This is my way of implementing a degree of social justice in the mm -hmm. world that I know, but it's also really fulfilling to be able to come back from, you know, my PhD studies and actually apply some of the things that I have learned there to the, this world that I know and love. So if you ever want to talk more about this, or if anybody ever has questions, I hope everybody feels free to reach out to me. I am in no way any kind of high and mighty person. I do respond to emails and cold calls. So thank you for opening that door for our listeners. And I would love to end with my signature question, which is what do you know for sure? 
What I know for sure is that leadership annual giving, you cannot unlock the full potential of your alumni population without giving considerable thought to leadership annual giving and the annual giving segments of your pipeline. If you create inequities in the structures of your institution, particularly how you shape your advancement operation, those inequities will reproduce in the institution as a whole and the impacts that it produces, especially yeah. if we say we're committed to equity, you know, and this is, again, goes back to that question of performativity because there are easy answers. There are things that present themselves as very straightforward, but what we really need is to really think about the, think critically about the structures that have been implemented, particularly in times when we were not so cautious about producing inequities. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you.